This morning we have two readings, and the first one is in Exodus chapter 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the, pe- on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Our second reading is then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And we're going to start at verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors and say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete. 
and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Let's begin with a prayer. Loving Father, your word is living, it's active, it's sharp and the two-edged sword. And we pray, may we know its power, may we not resist its power. And with the help of your spirit, may we live it out in our lives, individually and corporately, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, you need to get back to Exodus 24 if you're not there already. We continue our series in the book of Exodus, page 82. And I want to suggest that this passage is really addressing one of the big issues of our contemporary world, one of the big big issues for each of us individually. It's an issue that we spent a whole term a year ago thinking about, the question of identity. It's hard to think of a bigger one for our culture where increasingly, whether people believe in God or not, increasingly, culturally, we've rejected the idea of a creator, personal God. And as a result, what's left of human beings? We've just emerged from the dust. We have no inherent meaning, no inherent value. As has often been pointed out, the death of God, you might say that the murder or the rejection of God has led to the abolition of humanity. We're inherently worthless. Jean-Paul Sartre, atheistic philosopher, said this, man is an empty bubble on a sea of nothing. Is that all we are? It's one of the big issues of today. Who are we as human beings? And who are we individually? Who am I? It's one of the most important questions anyone can ask, and perhaps Our generation, this culture, is less able to answer it than any generation in history. We're suffering from an identity crisis. Singer Jessie J called her first album, Who You Are. She said afterwards, the irony is, at the time, I had no idea who I was. Well, do you? If you were to answer the question, who am I? How would you reply? Perhaps you'd refer to your job, I'm a physio, I'm a teacher, to your relationships, I'm married to Jane, I'm the daughter of John and Joanna, maybe your personality, I'm an introvert or an extrovert, your nationality or ethnicity, I'm Scottish, I'm American, Singaporean. If you were to go back in history into Old Testament times, I reckon there's no question what a faithful Israelite would have answered and how they would have answered that question, who am I? They would have said, I, actually better, we, because there was no concept really of individual, isolated individual identity. It's corporate sense of belonging. We are members of God's covenant community. We belong to God. That's who we are. God's people And their membership of the people of God was defined by covenant. God had committed himself in covenant love. Covenant's an Old Testament word. Perhaps we think, what does that mean? Think contract. Think binding obligation. It's a binding agreement between two parties as God committed himself by promise to a particular people. And then 
Those people chosen by him respond by committing themselves to obeying him. And that's what's going on at this key moment. It's really a repetition, or you might say a fulfillment, of what we looked at three weeks ago. Genesis 19, where they gathered at the mountain. And you remember I, I put up a family photograph and said, well, that's us, that's the Roberts family. And in the Old Testament times, they would have pointed to that scene, which was a, a precursor of this scene, Exodus 24. If you like, it's the signing ceremony of this contract. And they said, that's us. So I make no apology for basically repeating the sermon of three weeks ago. It'll, it'll sound a bit different, but it's the same scene. It's the same essential message, because it's so absolutely fundamental. Because only when you discover who you are will you know how you should be living. And the Old Testament and the prophets of God kept bringing Israel back to this point. And we, in a sense, need to be brought back to this point. With a very clear reminder, though, that that's not where we ultimately belong. Because the prophets say, that was amazing, but there's going to be a new covenant. Which picks up on the same promises, but they're fulfilled in a more powerful, deeper way. Who are we if we're Christians? We're God's family. God's covenant people. If you're not a Christian here today, well, I hope you'll forgive us as we think about our identity. But as you listen in, this could be yours too. Three important themes. The basis of our identity, it's grace. The obligations of our identity, obedience. The privileges of our identity, relationship, relationship with God. So first, the basis of our identity, grace. And you remember, if you've been coming to this series in Exodus, where we've come from. God has redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to himself. He's then revealed the Ten Commandments. And then last week we saw how those essential principles were fleshed out with more laws. And having heard those laws, the people indicate they're willing to obey them. They accept their obligations within the covenant. And then verse 4, Moses gets up early to make preparations for what you might say is a formal acceptance ceremony, a signing ceremony almost. He builds an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai. That represents the presence of God. And then he sets up 12 stone pillars, which represent the 12 tribes. So as it were, symbolically speaking, both parties to the contract are present, God and the people. But then notice what happens next. Verse 5. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Now to the modern ear, that sounds not only strange, but barbaric. Before the signing ceremony, animals are killed. Blood is shed. What is going on here? Well, a very important lesson is being underlined. It is not an easy thing to God to enter into relationship with people like the Israelites because he is a holy God, the perfect holy God. And they are sinful people. And that is not a good match. In matchmaking, whether it's in traditional societies, families trying to find a, a husband or, or a wife, 
for the next generation, whether it's dating sites, compatibility is what people are trying to find. A good match. And here is complete incompatibility between the holy, awesome God who is absolutely pure and sinful people like the people of Israel, who were no worse than any other nation, but nor were they any better. No match at all. And so the question comes, how can God accept Israel as his people? They deserve to be cut off from him and separated. We saw in the early chapters of the book of Exodus that when God passed through the land in judgment, the land of Egypt, the Israelite firstborn deserved to die just as much as the Egyptians. How could they possibly survive? Well, God provided a substitute. That Passover lamb was killed instead, and the blood was daubed on the doorframe. To make it clear, this is not an easy thing for God to accept Israel. A death is demanded, but God graciously provides another to die instead. And these sacrifices, just before the signing ceremony, are reminders of those Passover sacrifices. It's a very clear message. Once again, you don't deserve to be my covenant people. You deserve death. But I've provided animals to die instead of you. In other words, all this is by grace. Only made possible because God is committed to it and he's willing to forgive on the basis of the death of another. That is the basis by which our identity as God's people is established. An amazing gift. It is the only solid basis for an identity. A young man said to a friend of mine these words, the problem is our culture tells us that we are nothing, and yet we can be everything. And I think the tension puts such pressure on us because if we don't make it, then it's all on us and we just fall back into the abyss. Quite a profound statement. Here's the duality of our our culture. On the one hand, you're a nothing. Human beings have no inherent meaning and value. We've just emerged from the dust. You're a nothing. And yet on the other hand, right from childhood, you can be what you want. You can be everything. But it's all on you. Because inherently you're a nothing, and if you're to make anything of your life, if you're to establish an identity that means anything, well, you've got to achieve. You've got to make your identity. First, it sounds terribly inspiring, but then it becomes completely crushing. And this is the crushing burden that so many of you are maybe easily conscious of, maybe just subconscious of. That sense you've got to make something of your life. You make yourself worthy and worthwhile. And for some, that leads to an endless sense of failure because you've never quite done it. Right from childhood, you've never quite done it. You feel a disappointment. You feel as if you've got no substantial identity. It's crushing. For others, it's crushing in a rather different way. You have been successful. You're achieving all the dreams that you set for yourself and that your parents had for you and you've kept on doing it. But now the challenge is you've got to keep doing it. You can't relax. If you relax for a moment, your identity could be lost. As soon as you fail an exam, that's not just a failure of an exam. It's a loss of identity. Don't get that job. Loss of identity. It's crushing. And here is the wonderful, wonderful message. 
of the Christian gospel. That our identity is a gift. We are God's covenant people, not because we've somehow earned it. If it was because we'd earned it, we could lose it, couldn't we? If we sin, we'd think, help, have I lost God's friendship? It's by grace. And he took the penalty for our inability to keep God's law. In the old covenant, it was an animal. But of course, no animal could be an adequate substitute for a human being. So that's a model for the perfect new covenant. And Jeremiah, who was quoted in the book of Hebrews, says there's going to be a better covenant, a new covenant. And when that new covenant comes, God will say, I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more. Made possible, not because an animal has died, but because the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has died for you. And so if you've trusted in Christ, you couldn't have a more secure identity. doesn't depend on what you've got to keep on doing. It's an amazing gift of God's grace. The basis of our identity, grace. Second, the obligations of our identity, obedience. What God has done comes first. We've seen that in the, the, the narrative flow of the book of Exodus. Begins with God redeeming them from slavery in Egypt and bringing them to himself. And only once they come to Sinai as God's covenant people already redeemed, does he then say, here is what I want you to do. Here are my commands. As my people, live as my people. You're God's holy people. You should live holy lives. So we have a reminder in verse 5 of the sacrifices that make it possible for God to accept them as, as his people. And only then, verse 7, does he remind the people of their obligations. So he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And I take it that would have been the Ten Commandments, chapter 20, and those additional commands that you looked at last week. The God who delivers is a God who demands. His standards are outlined in these previous chapters, and they're very demanding. When the Lord Jesus was asked to say what was the, the greatest command, he summarized all the laws of God. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As God's holy people, we should live holy lives. You see, our identity flows into how we should live. And that is always the way. Neil Diamond, who must be making a, a huge amount of money these days because just about every major sporting event, Sweet Caroline, blares out, and the, and the crowds join in. That's Neil Diamond. And as a young songwriter, he was getting nowhere. He wrote later, I didn't know who I was. Only when I worked out who I am did I get a script to follow and a song to sing. We'll never know how we should live until we've discovered who we are. See, your, your identity inevitably has obligations. You will live in the light of your identity. I think a year or so ago I quoted from Andrew Bunt's book, which I, I recommend to you, a little book called Finding Your Best Identity. Subtitle, A Short Christian Guide to identity, sexuality, and gender. 
Andrew talks about his own experience as a young child. He said as a child, he was convinced that he was a girl and convinced that he wanted to be a girl. Then after puberty, he found he was attracted to other boys. At the same time, he felt totally inadequate. He was bullied and teased by his peers. Well, where should he find his true identity? Should he look within to his feelings? That's what many people are saying in the world today. Look within. Well, the trouble is that changed over time. When he was little, when he looked within, it told him he was a girl. When he grew up a little, he was a gay boy, gay teenager. Who am I? Changes according to our feelings. Or should we look to others to give us an identity? Well, what other people were saying was that he was a loser. And he very easily adopted that kind of view. Other people thought he was a loser. He felt like he was a loser. And if he wasn't careful, he could easily have lived out an identity as a loser. But then wonderfully he came to be gripped by the Christian gospel. And he realized he was deeply loved by God. And who he was, was bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of God's people. That set him free to be who he really was. People say, you've got to be who you really are. Well, as a Christian, who he really is, is someone joined to Christ. And that flows out into an obligation to live for Jesus Christ. He talks in that book about the concept of a core identity. I quote, something that is true of us only becomes our identity when it becomes core to how we view ourselves. And when it therefore begins to exert some control over us, impacting how we feel and how we live. Identity is our controlling self-understanding. We don't know how we should live until we've discovered who we are. We're not primarily, as Christians, defined by our ethnicity. And perhaps you think, well, I, I'm, I'm English. And we English are reserved. The Englishman's home is his castle. Of course, we can't be expected to be very welcoming to newcomers, invite people around, because we're English. And then we become gripped by Christ. And I might find it hard to be warm and open, invite people to my home, but I'm a Christian. That defines who I am and therefore how I should live, which is to warm, be warm and welcoming. Not defined by sexuality. Straight, gay, bi, pansexual, all these, these labels. They may describe how we feel, who we might be attracted to. They don't define who we are or how we should live. I'm a Christian. That's my core identity. That should flow into how I might live my life. Or sociology, that's increasingly how people are defining, whether consciously or subconsciously, who they really are, victim or oppressor. And depending on which group you belong to, assert your victimization, repent of your privileges. And there's a good, noble reason behind much of that kind of talk to counter the injustices of the past and the discrimination of the past. The danger, though, is that by pushing us into those categories, they end up deepening human divisions, trap us into different boxes. Whereas fundamentally, all of us, whether we've been oppressors or victims, all of us now are one in 
Christ. And that should massively affect how we relate to one another, how we relate to the world, how we live. As God's holy people, well, that defines how we should live our lives. Identity flows into an obligation to live for him. And God's people commit. End of verse 7. And they all stand up, as it were, and they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And the stakes are very high. Although entry into the covenant people of God is all of grace, we saw back in chapter 19 that blessing within the covenant is conditional on obedience. The end of chapter 23, God outlines all he's going to do for his people. As it were, this is his side of the contract. And he tells them he's going to protect them. He'll ensure they prosper. But then notice, beginning of verse 22, chapter 23, beginning of 22, notice that word, if. If you listen carefully to what God says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to an enemy to your enemies, and will oppose those who oppose you. If, if you respond in obedience, then I will care for you. Here's the tension in the old covenant. Unconditional promises to Abraham, I will bless you and through you all nations will be blessed. But then an element of conditionality under Moses. Now that you are my people, there's an if. Only if you obey me will you enjoy the blessing of being my covenant people and will you fulfill your vocation as a light to the nations. And the problem was, they couldn't. They didn't. We'll see just in two weeks' time that even when Moses is still up the mountain, the people down below are creating a golden calf and bowing down and worshipping it. It was a terrible sadness in this covenant, the lack of ability of the people of God to obey. And so what an encouragement it is to hear the words of Jeremiah quoted in Hebrews. That whereas in the past the people couldn't fulfill the covenant, here's a new covenant. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. So in these new covenant days, rather than just pointing us to the Ten Commandments, there they are. They're literally on tablets of stone at the front of church. And the old covenant, all it could do, as it were, was say, that's what you've got to do. And if you combine stone walls with stony hearts, you get no obedience. But the new covenant is saying, God is going to write those laws on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. There'll be a longing to obey. Not perfectly sadly, because the stony hearts haven't disappeared altogether, but there's a new heart by the Holy Spirit lifting us up. And Christian obedience is about following the way of the Spirit, growing in knowledge and love of Jesus, and wanting to please Him more and more, so that more and more we become who we really are, living out our identity as God's covenant people in obedience to him. The basis of our identity, grace, the obligations of our identity, obedience, and then finally, briefly, the privilege of our identity, relationship. The covenant's just been confirmed. The blood is sprinkled on the altar, sprinkled on the people, sealed, as it were, with, with blood, this covenant. And then we read next, verse 9. 
Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. The ink on the contract, as it were, is still not dry. And the leaders of the people are ushered into the very presence of God. And that is the goal of the covenant. Relationship between God and his people. The God who delivers is the God who demands, is the God who draws near. And at Christmas time, of course, we celebrate that great truth. He's a God who doesn't turn away in disgust, but despite our sin, he's the God who comes near and longs for relationship. That's the goal of it all. That's why the climax of this book, we'll think of in a couple of weeks' time, is the building of the tabernacle, where God comes and lives amongst his people. And here we get a foretaste of that. As God invites the leaders of the people to draw near to him. Verse 11, God did not raise his hand against these leaders. They saw God and ate and drank. Wow. In Oxford and Cambridge colleges, there's a great divide between the students down there and the dons up here, literally on a raised platform, and here will be high table. And, of course, they wouldn't come in the doors where the students come in. They've got a separate entrance, and they, they eat separate food. And never the twain shall meet, at least in the dining room. Maybe a graduate student might have the privilege of being invited up onto high table, but very, very rarely. Well, I was an undergrad, and for the first time in the history of the college, we won a football competition. And the Dons very, very kindly invited us to eat on high table. And we too came through that special door. Of course, we enjoyed it, waving at our friends, the hoi polloi down there. I think some of my friends enjoyed it a little bit too much. So let's just say I don't think that experiment has ever been repeated. And no undergrad has ever more gone on that table. And at the end of the meal, it was very nice, but then we went back to our different places. I don't think the captain was invited into the master's lodge. I never went into the master's lodge in the whole of my time in the college. Well, here is 70 people, as it were, invited onto high table to dine with God. And then Moses inviting uniquely to go up the mountain and to commune with God for 40 days. And we're told, verse 16, the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain. What an amazing privilege. But even while they witnessed something of that privilege, most of them were set apart. There was a distance. And they sensed that some of their representatives could vaguely meet with God, but the distance was all too clear. And that, of course, is underlined in the the architecture of the tabernacle, where only one man, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. That was once a year. And then the priests in the next section, and most of the people at a distance. That's the Old Covenant. An amazing privilege. No other nation had God living in their midst, but they couldn't get too close. What's offered us in the New Testament, the New Covenant, is even better. Hebrews 8 verse 11, No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ who opens the way into heaven itself, all of us can eat and drink with God. That's what the Lord's Supper is doing, isn't it? 
I'm not the host, Pete's not the host, the Lord Jesus is the host. And that table is a wonderful symbol of what we can enjoy in Christ. Take, eat, take, eat. Commune with God. Because Jesus died for you, the door is wide open. This is who we are. So what's your identity? If you're a Christian, think of this scene and then turn it up beautifully into new covenant colors, vibrant and bright. Because the new covenant's even better than what we see in Exodus 24. Sins will no longer be remembered. Obedience will no longer be impossible. God will no longer be a stranger. Delight in this. Make the most of it. With the help of the Holy Spirit, as we remember the forgiveness of our sins, as we delight in our relationship with God, then more and more, say no to those other competing identities with the obligations they're calling us towards and say, no, that is not me. Own our Christian identity. And live a Christian way for the glory of God. Let's pray. Loving Father, help us more and more to understand who we truly are. Defined by your grace to us in Christ. And then help us to help one another together to live in this way. For your glory. Amen.